Sir Clive Killinson is a British cellist and arts administrator. He is best known for his long tenure as the managing director of the London Symphony Orchestra from 1984 to 2005, and his current position as executive and artistic director of Carnegie Hall. Today he will discuss the arts community, how they have been affected by COVID-19, and how they hope to recover. Let's listen in. As I was thinking about people to invite, I realized that one of the really still evolving and, and relatively untold stories of the pandemic so far has been its damage to the nonprofit world, um, and particularly to the performing arts. I'm on the board of a regional theater in New Jersey, and I know what's going on here, and I could only imagine what, how this is affecting the really biggest arts organizations. Um, because like sports, performing arts provide exactly the sort of in-person experiences that are now impossible. Today, we are honored to have join us one of the top leaders in this area, Clive Gillinson of Carnegie Hall, which is, of course, one of the world's most recognized venues, if not the most recognized. Let me introduce Clive briefly, and then I'll turn it over to him for remarks, and of course, we'll have a chance to ask questions. Clive Gillinson became Executive and Artistic Director of Carnegie Hall in July 2005. He is responsible for developing the artistic concepts for Carnegie Hall presentations in its three halls, the celebrated Stern Auditorium Perlman Stage, Innovative St. Kell Hall, and Intimate Weill Recital Hall, representing approximately 170 performances each season, ranging from orchestral concerts, chamber music, solo recitals, to jazz, world, and popular music. He oversees the management of all aspects of the world-renowned venue, including strategic and artistic planning, resource development, education, finance, and administration and operations for the Wild Music Institute, which taps into the resources of Carnegie Hall to bring music education and social impact programs to more than 600,000 people in the New York City metropolitan region, across the United States, and around the world each year. Clive, thank you very much for joining us today. We look forward to hearing about how you have gone from running an arts organization to dealing with this pandemic and what's ahead in this area of the world for us. Great. Well, look, I mean, firstly, Andy, thank you very much for introducing me and for welcoming me here. Nancy, thank you as well so much. I mean, you've created such an important organization and, you know, it's a great tribute to you, everything that you've done. So it's a great honor for me to be here to talk to you all. Um, really just to say, as you might just about have guessed, I'm not American. Um, and, and so, I mean, I think just worth saying that Carnegie Hall is the only reason um, I left the UK. Uh, you know, I'd been offered other jobs around the world, but Carnegie Hall genuinely to me is the greatest concert hall in the world. It's the only one that is known worldwide. And it's the only one that has the potential to transform music, transform people's lives through music to the degree it does. Um, so, I mean, it, you know, and for me, that's what life is all about. I mean, how, how do you affect and, and improve people's lives through the use of a great institution? On the education side, and uh, I mean, Andy asked me first to give a quick brief on what we do. I mean, and so we do a huge amount of education work as well as performance. And on the performance side, we've developed very big storytelling projects, big international and national festivals that explore all sorts of um, ideas that we think are topical and important. We've looked at migrations, how migrations created and formed American culture. Um, we've looked at um, the African-American cultural legacy. We've looked at Berlin, Vienna, the Venetian Republic, South America, um, you know, so, um, so many different projects. And, and our one coming up next season 
um, is the artist under tyranny and how artists, no matter how appalling the circumstances, always still have to create art and, and how that art is not about the misery and the agony. Um, it's really about inspiration and the human spirit and hope and really enabling people to fulfill their talent and their ability. And we'll be looking at slavery, we'll be looking at the Holocaust, we'll be looking at the Armenian genocide, we'll be looking at the arts under the Soviet Union and, and many other different things. Um, so every year we try and do something that we think is really an important subject and clearly that one is. And then we do a lot of other projects which are big storytelling projects. And we try as well, particularly with our big festivals, to work right across New York City. We work with um, dance, film, theater, literature, uh, and so on. I mean, so that we're telling the stories in a way that creates journeys of exploration for audiences all the way across culture. And we work with up to 80 different institutions across the city developing those journeys. Um, I mean, in addition, we present every the best of every sort of music. So it's classical music, jazz, world music. Um, we look at every every genre of music and bring the greatest artists here. And it really is the place every great artist wants to perform. And I couldn't begin to count the number of people where I've gone backstage after they've made their Carnegie Hall debut and you find them in tears because this is what they've been waiting their entire life to do. Um, so, I mean, it does have a magic that really travels across the world. And that means we have a huge responsibility as well, because to use the potential um, of the power of this institution is so important. And we've really over the last, I've been there 15 years now, as you heard from Andy's intro. And over that period, we've really built up what was a, a smallish education program into massive education programs that really affect people across the entire country. Um, we're now reaching over 800,000 people a year with our music education programs, most of them kids, and most of them kids who come from backgrounds where they wouldn't otherwise have the opportunities. Um, and we partner with organizations all across the country. For instance, with our program, one education program we do for elementary school kids, we work with 120 orchestras across America. We give them all of the resources, all the curriculum, everything, and we help to train them to deliver the programs to enable them to have the world-class resources that they could never ever achieve on their own. Um, so we do all of that sort of work. So a lot of our work is with kids in that way, not necessarily at all for kids to become musicians, but to make sure that we're nurturing their curiosity, their creativity, and that music can be a part of their life. Um, it doesn't matter at all whether they're gonna take music up or not. There's another big strand we do, which is about nurturing the finest talent in America. So um, six years ago, we created the National Youth Orchestra of America, the most brilliant 16 to 19 year olds in the States. And we take them every year, obviously not this year, uh, but we take them every year to a different part of the world um, as cultural ambassadors for their country. And the American ambassadors in every country we've been always tell them what an extraordinary job they do, that what they do is worth. I remember the American ambassador in Moscow we went, when we were playing there, he said, what you've just done tonight is worth 10 treaties I could sign, um, you know, in, in Russia. And, and this is what happens wherever they go. They connect with young people. So they build relationships with young people all around the world. And those relationships now, thanks to social media, 
are relationships that will be relationships for life. Um, the other thing that's interesting is these kids, you know, who are the most extraordinary talents in America at music, only about 50% of them will take up music. Um, they are so multi-talented. They're off to Yale and Harvard and goodness knows where else, um, you know, becoming lawyers or mathematicians or physicists or goodness knows what. So, so in other words, these connections and these relationships between the greatest musicians in the country will be with people who also could have been exactly that, but who have chosen completely different paths. So they really are a network of leaders being built up across the country who are going to have a great impact on the future of America. In addition to that, we created a younger orchestra because we were very aware um, that the people joining that orchestra weren't as diverse as America is. And so we thought we'd create a younger orchestra and proactively seek out the most brilliant kids with the most brilliant talent who hadn't necessarily had the opportunity. And this is younger, it's 14 to 17, and it's almost 50% black and Latino kids. Um, you know, but much, much more diverse. And that's been going now for several years. And they're now feeding through into the National Youth Orchestra, the older orchestra, and on into the music colleges around America. And ultimately, they will change the face of American music in terms of participation. So they're having a big impact in that way. And then two years ago, we started National Youth Orchestra Jazz, which is obviously America's own art form. Um, so again, they've traveled the world um, on, as a, you know, American musical ambassadors having a huge impact wherever they go. So these are broadly the things that we're doing on that side. On the digital side, we were developing a lot of ways in which we could share our education programs. We're doing a certain amount in terms of streaming of performances. Um, so it's all the time we've been working to maximize the reach of what we do. And our whole philosophy is we're here to serve this is never about the glory of Carnegie Hall or making sure that Carnegie Hall looks fantastic or anything like that, or building the brand. It's always about how do we serve people's lives and transform lives through music and the arts. Um, and that is what everybody's there for. And, we, and it creates a very different approach as well. Because I remember when I first arrived at Carnegie Hall, very often people would say, um, we'd have a meeting about a project and somebody would say, well, what's best for Carnegie Hall? And I always said, it's the wrong question. The only question we should be asking is how do we transform lives through music? If we achieve that, that is what is best for Carnegie Hall. Um, not short term, um, it, you know, there may be no benefit short term, but ultimately it's the right thing to do. And that is what we have to exist for. And so, you know, education now, as you probably all know, has become a big part um, of most cultural institutions. They all feel a responsibility to society. It's something we feel we have to lead on. We've got to use the Carnegie Hall brand and the strength that brings um, to the table. So we're now partnering with organizations around the world as well. So, I mean, there's organizations in China, in Spain, in Britain, who are developing and using our programs as well as all around America. So, I mean, I think it's really important, and it's one, it's one of the things that struck me coming here, is that when you are running an organization like this that can genuinely affect the world, it is your responsibility to do that to the best of your ability. Um, and that is what we're dedicated to. So we've gone from reaching, um, you know, perhaps 60, 70, 80,000 people through the education programs when I arrived 
to now 800,000 and, and reaching upwards and upwards. And that does not include what we're doing online as well. And obviously that is now growing exponentially as well. So, I mean, that's a broad look at what we do. Because of COVID-19, we had to close down on March 13. We've now canceled all the way through um, to January 7. So that's nine months of the year gone, um, which of course, I mean, is heartbreaking for everybody. You spend years and years putting programs together, which you think are gonna be absolutely transformative. Um, and then to have to cancel all of that. So it's been very tough on staff. Um, so, you know, that's, but it's also given us the chance to exponentially develop our digital programs. Um, so we're looking at both, um, how do we share all our education programs more effectively digitally? And we're doing that in a huge way. Um, and that's with almost all of our programs um, now being shared digitally as well. Um, we're also sharing more things. We've created specific programs um, on the performance side as well. So we can really keep audiences engaged, keep them you know, receiving things that really matter to them and are meaningful. We're in the process of creating a fellowship program so that we will help to train um, kids, but particularly minority kids. Um, well, actually kids isn't really the right word. I mean, some of them will be people out of music, out of colleges, sorry, not music colleges, out of colleges, um, you know, so they'll get fellowships to work in every department at Carnegie Hall, be it the artistic planning, um, development, marketing, PR, sponsorship, everything. Um, so we'll, we'll develop fellowships in that way. We've been started talking to major institutions um, nationally who can partner with us around mentoring. Um, and so we'll be looking at two levels. One is expanding a lot the work we do um, with people who are out of college and, and thinking about what is their life going to be? What, you know, where, where do they want their career to go? And a lot of them would never think um, they have the opportunity for music to be part of that. And we'll be looking very particularly, again, at minorities where they wouldn't otherwise have the opportunities or perhaps even imagine that this could be for them. But also we're wanting to build in parallel with that a leadership program, which is for people who have um, done a certain amount of management, have not necessarily thought of the arts as where they want to go next, um, and, and where we can actually train them, mentor them, and equip them to lead arts organizations or other organizations. It may not necessarily be arts. So, and it's something, again, we want to develop in a national way so that we can help other organizations to do it. So that we're really giving, creating opportunities for people who genuinely would not have those opportunities. So these are some of the things that we've got in process at the moment that we're working on. And a lot of those um, are not completed yet. Um, you know, all the digital transformation is on its way, but it's not completed. But we have until the end of the year now, because we're cancelled through December. We've got until the end of the year, both to completely transform the way we work digitally, um, which is what we're doing and we will have done by then. Um, and that, of course, will be something that's all for the future as well. It's not just COVID related. It means that COVID has at least given us the chance through destroying so much else. Um, it's given us the chance to take things forward in a way we could never have dreamed possible without another three, four, five years of work um, under normal circumstances. And the fellowship program as well, we hope to be launching 
within the next couple of months or so. I mean, just to sort of go on to talk a little bit more generally about arts organisations and where they are. I mean, needless to say, the crisis is nowhere near over. And I'm not just talking about um, what you all were just mentioning about no schools will now open in California, um, or I think it was in LA, and um, you know, until the new year, um, you know, things like that. I mean, uh, you know, the, it's also not nearly over because of the nature of the performing arts sector. Um, by definition, we will be amongst the last to reopen, um, you know, along with all those who rely on public assembly, um, but particularly the performing arts. Um, our halls are very intensely populated, as all of you know, who go to Broadway or to the theatre or to concerts. And in addition, older buildings like Carnegie Hall and Broadway have very minimal public spaces. They were built quite differently from the way one expects contemporary spaces to be. So it's very hard to enforce social distancing and ensure everybody's safety. And, and it's equally as true on Broadway as it is um, at Carnegie Hall and Lincoln Center and a lot of other places. So far, Carnegie Hall and all major performance venues around the country, I don't think there's any exceptions, have been forced to cancel all performances, rentals and events through to January 2021. And I think it's by no means a given um, that we will all be able to start up again in January 2021, um, because I think all of us are pretty clear that without a vaccine, the chances of really being able to open in a meaningful way are negligible. So um, we've only canceled through to January 2021 because we've got to reappraise and we'll have to make a decision probably end of October, beginning of November to decide whether or not we can then open in January. Otherwise, we will probably shut for a further two or three months. Um, you know, and at the moment, it's impossible to know what that might be. In addition, because we plan a long, long way ahead and we're absolutely certain that um, both in January to June 2021, the first half of next year, which is the second half of this season, um, we're absolutely certain, even if there's a vaccine, we're not going to see attendances of around 90%, which is, I mean, our average is in the high 80s. We're not going to see attendances like that remotely. So the cost of reduced attendances will be very significant. So we're having to reduce the season January to June next year, even if it can take place at all. And we're also doing a very similar exercise for the whole of the following season, 2021-22, because again, we think that it's going to be a long, long time before life genuinely returns to normal and people have the confidence to be going out to venues where they're, meet, they're getting very closely together with people um, no matter what, how, no matter how careful you are. So the other thing is that without a vaccine, if we, we've done all the figures around social distancing in our hall, have all our, as have all our colleagues. I mean, I've talked to people on Broadway, um, with Broadway theatres, I've talked to Lincoln Centre. We talk to all of the other major venues. And for all of us, it's broadly the same. We think with social distancing, we can probably have about 10% attendance. Um, that is all, 10, maybe 15% attendance. Um, so in other words, without a vaccine, um, one's going to have two, 300 people in a venue for 3,000 in our case, um, which financially, of course, would be utterly crippling, um, you know, catastrophic to try and open under those circumstances. And it's typical for all venues similar to ours 
that house the performing arts. Um, I mean, it's slightly different for organizations like museums who can manage the number of people who are, who are going through at any one time. I mean, of course, they're gonna to have to reduce drastically the number of people going through, but they're all looking at reopening, you know, perhaps within the next two to three months, um, at least with limited attendance. Um, but that just simply isn't possible for performing arts organizations where you, you know, you also are making sure you really look after everybody's health and safety. The other thing worth noting is that decisions for performances and concerts have to be made months and for some organizations, even years in advance. I mean, to get a Broadway show up and running takes a long time um, from the moment you've made the decision that you're gonna do it. So, you know, for us, it's a long time. We have, a, I mean, it's an absolute minimum of two months, two to three months um, from the decision to the time you reopen. Um, for some people, it's less. For some people, it's much more. So it varies a lot. So a lot of performing arts organizations across the country are at risk, even the most prominent and well-known. Um, both profit, non, not profit, not-for-profits or non-profits like Carnegie Hall and Lincoln Center, um, you know, as well as um, the for-profit organizations like Broadway, all of them. Um, depend absolutely on earned revenue and earned revenue as of March 13 obviously has been absolutely zero um, and that's for nine months so far and could be a lot longer. Um, so you know again we're going to have to look at further very difficult decisions about how yet further do we save money. I mean obviously from the instant we had to close down we made cuts in every way. At that point we furloughed about 80 staff out of our 350 full-time staff. Um, and those were 80 people who only work when the hall is actually operating or when the halls are operating. Um, for all, most of us, PPP, um, for which a big thank you um, to everybody who was involved, was a lifeline and particularly for most of our staff as it enabled us to keep our staff on as it did for so many organizations um, through June 30. Um, but we've now, as of July, we've had to furlough another 51 of our remaining staff um, since we're shut for another six months. So in terms of staff, obviously, I mean, incredibly tough. And the other thing we've done as well, right across the organization, which I know is pretty common um, amongst arts organizations, we've obviously reduced pay all around. Um, I mean, for the since we closed on March 13, um, I gave myself a 50% pay cut. Um, we cut our senior staff, and our, but not the rest of our staff at that point. Um, but our senior staff had a pay cut. Now, from this year, starting now on July 1, um, I'm taking a 25% pay cut for senior staff, 10%, and the rest of the staff, 8%, but not for anybody earning below 75,000. And they won't have any reduction. So there's a lot of things like that we're doing as well. Um, because we obviously want to minimize the number of staff we lose um, or have to lose. And there's also a great danger for all arts organizations that if you lose or have to furlough too many people, you're potentially losing skills, experience, knowledge, and obviously it has a big impact on staff morale as well. So, um, you know, in order to make sure you're not damaging the organization for the long term, it's obviously important to keep as many staff as possible still involved and still doing work.
all arts organizations, of course, will have to carry forward huge losses. Um, for us, on a budget of what was going to be $104 million this year, we'll lose about $8 million in FY20, which closed on June 30, and much more than that next year. Now, I've been running Carnegie Hall for 15 years, and we've never had a deficit in that time. And it's always been a matter of honor that we never should have a deficit. But obviously, under these circumstances, completely impossible not to have a deficit, um, unless you literally get rid of everybody. And even then, you'd still have a deficit, but then you destroy the organization for the future. So you cannot do it. Um, and this sort of level of loss, or even more, is going to be true of arts organizations across the country. And that's not just performing arts, it's museums and every other one as well. As I know you're also, I'm sure, acutely aware, state and local government resources are now stretched absolutely past the limit. And this further destabilizes the nonprofit art sector, as the arts are often among the first items to be cut from state and local budgets. Therefore, additional federal government support for the arts and cultural sector to weather the pandemic is vitally important, um, as is funding for state and local governments through bills like the SMART Act, um, which might or will relieve pressure on local budgets um, and hopefully in turn ease cuts in the arts sector. Now, in terms of the biggest impact Congress could have looking forwards, um, by far the biggest contribution would be to allow PPP borrowers, people who've already um, benefited from that and been able to keep on staff who they would otherwise have had to furlough or lose altogether. Um, for those that are not gonna be able to reopen, which particularly applies to performing arts organizations, would be the ability to apply for additional PPP loans. This would have a massive impact on performing arts organizations, but more especially on their staff and the ability to look after staff um, as much as one possibly can until at least some degree of normality returns and enables us all to restart performances again. So Nancy and Andy, I mean, that's, I hope a useful picture of the, the totality. I mean, I think nobody, you know, even though it's a, you know, a really obviously a, a very damaging, a very desperate situation in lots and lots of ways. I think everybody is using their ingenuity, their creativity, to look at how do you get really good things out of this as well, like all that switch to digital, all the things that can actually genuinely enhance your ability to serve people beyond COVID. Once COVID is all over and everybody's coming back into the halls, if one's created programs that will really benefit people long-term, those are all the things we're working on. Our view with everything that we're creating, and I think that's true of most arts organizations, is we should be creating things that are not just about now um, and dealing with this disaster, but things that will actually have really meaningful impact in the future and you know, for a, um, you know, on an ongoing basis. So that's where we all are. And I think you know, the good thing about it is it is an unbelievably creative sector. I mean, people really do, uh, you know, our staff have been extraordinary. People have worked the most insane hours um, you know, everybody's working harder than they've ever worked before. And, you know, having to do that, obviously, with reduced pay now. Um, but everybody shows an unbelievable commitment. And that is one of the 
the most inspiring things about working in the arts. Um, people are there because of their passion for what they do. And they will all move heaven and earth to make sure that we continue to do important things for people's lives. So I hope that's a, a useful introduction for a discussion. And please let me know um, what you'd all like to discuss. Sure. So Clive, that was wonderful. And I appreciate the, um, the detail too. I saw lots of people nodding their heads as you were talking about sort of specifically how this has affected Carnegie Hall. And um, it really colors in the lines for all of us. Um, you, of course, have generated a long list of questions, so I'm going to get right to them. Um, Andrew Tisch, you're first on my list. Uh, thanks, Andy. Uh, so, uh, uh, Clive, in the, um, in the last uh, decades or so, you've had so many different media that have been created and so many different names, whether it's Spotify or uh, Hulu or YouTube or Zoom or Apple or Amazon or Netflix, and they've all been designed to decongregate people. Uh, and into that, uh, obviously, COVID, which has forced everybody to decongregate. Your, your biggest battle is going to be how do you recongregate everyone? And, and uh, I, I know you've gone into a little bit, but can you say more about how you're going to get people psychologically back into uh, auditoria, uh, back into uh, uh, places where they're going to feel comfortable congregating and want to head back to uh, uh, places where they can be together? I mean, Andrew, it's a really good question. And it's not a question that I think anybody can answer definitively. Um, it, you know, because I think one never knows, even surveys never tell you about human behavior. Surveys tell you what people think they will do. They never tell you what they'll actually do. Um, and the two things can differ very substantially. The only thing I'd say is that the live performing arts are an experience that relate to sharing an experience. Being in Carnegie Hall, and particularly a hall as great as Carnegie Hall, I mean, it's it's one of the things that's, you know, I personally have experienced. I mean, I still walk in there 15 years after I first started working as the executive artistic director, and I still, it still takes my breath away to walk into that space. And people love to share great experiences, and, and great experiences share are quite different than watching something online. Um, you know, which is not the same experience. You're not interacting with it. It's not about the moment. Um, it's being presented for you. That's that's it. That's what you've got. So all I can tell you is, I, you know, throughout my life, I've had a total faith in the power of the art itself. And, and it's not that I don't think um, you can create something very powerful and meaningful online. Um, I think you can. And so what we're looking at Therefore, is the fact, you know, the reality of life is, I mean, what, perhaps we'd be, it would probably be a lot if 1% of the world's population will ever enter Carnegie Hall. Um, it probably won't even be remotely 1%. So in other words, if we can give an experience that is a great experience, obviously doesn't compete with, it's not as good and it never can be as good as the performance of actually being there and experiencing it directly. Um, if you can give something for people, you know, who maybe live in a small town, who don't have access even to the best, you know, in their locality, you know, if you think of all states in, in America, a lot of them have got great orchestras, but there's endless towns that don't. Um, you know, this is the same worldwide, wherever you go. And so there are, there's the access to world-class performance 
is very, very limited around the entire world. So live is one thing, totally different. The other is the digital experience can give you access to something you can't possibly get live locally. So therefore it can still remain utterly meaningful. And the other thing I'd just say though is coming back to vaccine. Um, I mean, this is only a guess, you know, it's just one, one's understanding of human beings as you know them. My guess is that if there's a medicine, if there's a medicine, I still don't think people are gonna convene in cramped spaces like a, you know, a Broadway theater or Carnegie Hall. Nobody's gonna go somewhere where they think, I might catch the disease, but at least I'll be able to be cured. I mean, I think the chances of them going out remain low until there's a vaccine and until that vaccine is readily available. Then I think um, it will come back. I'm totally confident that with a vaccine that's available to all, that audiences will come back because I don't think any other experience can compete with the live experience. So, I mean, that's the broad answer. Does that answer your question? Um, pretty much, I, uh, but I, I think that uh, the, the live performance venues are gonna need to market together to you know, uh, uh, get people to think in terms of coming back and recongregating. I agree. And the other thing that it does, which is something anyway, I mean, we wouldn't be doing our job properly if we didn't do it, is we have to create irresistible experiences. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the fact is they've got to be unmissable. Um, you know, if it's a good concert, why would you bother to go out? It's got to be extraordinary. It's got to be great. Um, you know, so the fact is the live experience, it puts more pressure. The more that is digitally available, the more pressure it puts on the live experience being extraordinary. And, and in a way, making demands on us that we anyway should be making on ourselves. Um, but it means that anybody who is not being sufficiently demanding on themselves is, you know, will probably fail. Um, so, you know, one has got to be looking for the extraordinary, but it's one of the things, you know, I always say coming to America, it's one of the things I've loved most about coming here. I mean, in Britain, we had a certain amount of public subsidy, 30% of our budget came from the, um, the city and the state. Um, so we were heavily protected um, in certain ways, you know, and that doesn't exist here, as you know. And the thing that I love is when I go to see somebody and ask them for money to support a project, I know that if I go to any potential donor with a project that's a good project, I should forget it. Um, there is no point. You know, if I don't go with something that the world can't live without, I mean, that's the, that's the lens I try and look through for everything. You know, we've got to create something the world can't live without. It's got to feel so special that if somebody's interested, if they're not interested, they're not going to support it anyway. But if they're interested, they'll say this has got to happen. Um, and so, you know, again, it's all part of what we were talking about, which is you've got to be aiming for the extraordinary every minute of every day. And that, that, that I think, is absolutely central to answering your question about live. Great. Thank you. Bob Seidman, you've got a question. Hi, Mr. Gillison. Uh, thanks for coming. Appreciate it. Uh, my question is, uh, as you're aware that a lot of organizations and particularly artistic organizations have come under attack lately for the makeup of the artists, the, the uh, board of directors, the supporters, the kinds of uh, 
materials that they've uh, put on. Uh, and uh, when we see that the show Hamilton was attacked recently and um, criticized uh, significantly, I think we know that uh, there isn't anyone or any organization that's immune from this. So my question is, has Carnegie Hall, any performance been uh, uh, criticized or attacked in that way? And, and uh, what plans do you have for the inevitable attacks that will come somewhere down the line? Well, look, they will come. I mean, it doesn't matter what you do, they'll come, you know, which Hamilton is a good example of, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, they'll still come. Um, but the reality is, um, you know, we've had both black performers extensively on our stage um, from, you know, I mean, the interesting thing is since Carnegie Hall opened, um, Andrew Carnegie, um, you know, his view was that everybody should perform there. And we opened in 1891. In 1892 um, was the beginning of when black performers started performing at Carnegie Hall, where they couldn't perform in Washington. There were a lot of places they could not perform for a long, long time. So it's part of our history, but, but it's not really part of our history in terms of our proactive life. Because I don't know whether you know, I mean, Carnegie Hall was privately owned until 1960. Um, and so it was basically a rental hall. So in fact, the things that came there came there because other people wanted to present concerts. So it was very diverse, um, but it wasn't actually intentional. Um, there was no intentionality behind it. It was accepting rentals. Um, but from 1960, it was bought by the city rather than be destroyed. Um, and since then, we've had our own organization. And we, firstly, we're about the best of every sort of music. So, um, I mean, it's jazz, it's world music, it's classical, it's every sort of music. It is the greatest classical music concert hall in the world. So there is always going to be an emphasis on classical because you no hall can be all things to all people. Um, you know, and shouldn't try to be. I mean, no business tries to be all things to all people. You always fail if you try to do that. Um, so, you know, we we do work on doing the things that we can do really well. But yes, we have a very large number, not just of black artists, but um, of artists from across the spectrum, you know, from all around the world, from diverse communities all around the city as well as the country. Um, so that is central. Um, we've got a very significant number of um, staff who are either Black or Latinx. Um, we, our board, I brought on an advisor about seven years ago to help me expand um, the diversity on our board. It's a very diverse board now. Um, so I told you, I, I don't know whether you were in the room when I was talking about National Youth Orchestra 2, the younger one, where we've sought out younger players, you know, particularly black and Latinx players who haven't had the chances to give them the opportunity to join the younger ones so that they can get onto a pathway. And so that has transformed the pipeline through from NYO2, the younger one, through to the National Youth Orchestra, and now it's affecting who goes to music colleges. So in other words, it's part of what we do. It's part of what we've been for a long time. And with the big festivals I was talking about, more of them have had African-American culture as an aspect or a dimension of the festivals we've done since I started, because I created those when I arrived. So they've been going, we've had about 13 festivals in that time, um, of which four or five have related specifically to either African-American or black culture, which is far more than have related to anything else. Um, so in other words, it's a very conscious, deliberate 
approach to everything we do and has been for a long time. So it's nothing to do with reacting to what's happening today. Um, and the fellowship program I was talking about, again, is trying to broaden something where we feel we haven't done well enough. Um, you know, so there's lots of things where we can do better. Um, just because we think we've done a lot, um, it's not the same as saying we think we can't do better. So, um, you know, so the answer to your question is we will still get attacked. Um, you know, we know that everybody will, um, you know, but our view is it's not either. I mean, look, we, we all know that for very specific reasons, um, the issue about, you know, opportunities for black people in this country, it's a huge issue. It's something that should have been dealt with forever ago. It hasn't been. Um, of course, it's got to be dealt with. But we also believe, you know, long term, we're talking about diversity and opportunity in a much broader sense. Um, you know, we're talking about Latinx, we're talking about people, you know, Native Americans, we're talking about women. Um, you know, there are so many different dimensions to diversity that you have to address. Um, you know, so, and black is a very, very central and important focus right now, and so it should be. Um, but we are making sure that you don't end up getting pulled just into one narrow track and that you're not actually looking after diversity in the broadest sense, because we think that is our overall responsibility. If I could say one, one quick thing, um, I appreciate your answer, and uh, but one, one thing I'd like to point out, and I'll try to say this in the best way that I possibly can. I, I'm a, my wife and I are, are aficionados of theater and music, at least we used to be. Um, we, we, well, we recently moved to Las Vegas. It has a different kind of theater, but we enjoy it here. We uh, used to be in California, in the Bay Area. And I can tell you that for a number of reasons, we stopped attending theater. That's a very complex uh, thing, which was unfortunate. But at least in San Jose, I'll be specific, in San Jose, the, the pool of talent that they're you know, uh, reaching into is not as deep as what you have access to. It's not even as deep as San Francisco. But I can tell you that in, in, an, in attempts to diversify uh, in all aspects of their uh, theater, uh, they put on very diverse performances that just weren't very good. And I think from what you're saying, you know, something, I mean, Carnegie Mellon, sorry, Carnegie uh, Hall is the uh, epitome of, you know, what we expect. And, and people want to go to see, as you said, something that's incredibly unique. And I just want to say that uh, sometimes uh, incredibly unique would mean an all black performance, an all white performance, uh, a classical, uh, you know, I, I mean, I would. I think it's honorable to do what you're doing, but I just hope that the uh, the uh, quality of the performances don't suffer as they did significantly in San Jose when performances were really nothing special after several years. Well, look, I completely take your point and I agree that if one, if diversity means, you know, and get creating opportunities across the board for people across society, if that means you lower your standards, you failed everybody. You fail the audiences, you fail the people who you're trying to create opportunities for. If you lower the standards, you're firstly, it's patronizing. Um, you know, it's, it's absolutely not the right thing to do. Um, so, you know, the whole point of what we're trying to do is you want to level up, you don't want to level down. And, you know, and I, I mean, I think there's a lot of people who see um opportunity is leveling down and that's uh, to me is a disastrous decision 
Um, opportunity is about leveling up and giving everybody the chance to succeed, everybody the chance to be their best, um, everybody the chance to fulfill their talent, um, uh, you know, so that everybody's competing equally. I mean, the, our problem and challenge as a society is too often people don't have that chance. So it's our job to give everybody the chance to succeed and fulfill their talent and still meet the most exacting standards. And the whole point of that is so that they that everybody does meet those standards. So I, I totally take your point. Thanks, Bob. Steve Finkelman. Thank you for speaking to our group today and let you know that I really sympathize with the difficult times. But I wanted to focus on something you said near the beginning. And you kind of touched a little bit on your last response to Bob as well. I, I went to Performing Arts High School, and we always said that the values of learning to work together, the values of learning to practice discipline, and that somehow I think this may be the part that kind of ties into our organization where you had a lot of great talent in the room, but people let their egos, they let their these other deficiencies get in the way, and the the symphony as a whole, the orchestra, was not equal to the sum of the parts. So it can be either way. I know that what you're taught, you're trying to make something greater than the sum of the parts. And some of us feel that Congress, we know a lot of congressmen, a lot of good people, but somehow the institution is not rising. And I think that's part of what you were um, that we what we attempt to do in the music business is build something that's bigger than the sum of the parts. I agree with you. I mean, there's no point doing anything unless it's bigger than the sum of the parts. I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, when I was talking about some of the partnerships we do, when we do a partnership around a big festival, when we do the, when we did the Migrations Festival, um, you know, a year ago, um, we had 80 partner organizations. Everybody achieved far more than they could have achieved on their own. And by getting together, we created an experience that nobody could have done on their own. It was much more than the sum of the parts. Now, if we'd ended up doing something which again, I mean, was with the wrong partners. And I think a key thing for me on this always with every partnership is you have to be base every partnership on shared values. Um, you know, it doesn't mean shared beliefs, um, but shared values. And, and, uh, and that is fundamentally important. And it's the same, I mean, when I was talking about our program for elementary school kids across the country, where we're working with 120 orchestras, if they, if we don't believe in the same things in terms of the quality of the experience and the learning that we're creating, then we should not be partnering with them. That's a disaster. If it lowers the quality and means that we're not actually doing something that, that matters. Um, so I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, one always has to make sure, I mean, at the very least, it should be equal to the sum of the parts, but frankly, that's probably not worth doing either since it takes so much work to bring people together. Therefore, if you're gonna do it and you're gonna undertake that work, um, it should be more than the sum of the parts. I couldn't agree more. Ron Bergamini. Hi, uh, thank you, sir. I appreciate the fervor that you bring to the position. I, for one, could not imagine New York City without Carnegie Hall. Um, if I may uh, ask a somewhat selfish question. Uh, I have a son, 26 years old, who graduated from Berkeley College of Music and just really getting things going. I realize potential for income these days is pretty low, but what about the professional development, some of these networks? What, what advice would you have for the, the artist who's, whose career is paused at the moment? Well, I mean, I won't try and 
diminish how difficult it is right now because I think for young artists who haven't really established themselves, it's astoundingly difficult. Um, you know, and I think the only way one can do this, and that, you know, not everybody can do it because you know one's got to live. Um, you know, there's a degree to which you have to invest in your own career, and you know, so you know, creating videos, doing stuff on YouTube, doing stuff on social media, which gets you known. Um, you're not going to make any money on it. Right. Um, but but I think there are times when you simply just have to, you know, if you want to work in the arts, you simply just, you know, unless you're lucky and you get a job, um, you know, but for a performer, that's tough often. I mean, you know, I mean, not everybody's going to be a star and you don't need to be a star. I mean, the fact is you don't have to be a star to earn a good living, but you've got to find your place um, and that takes time. So it's all, you know, I always say to people, you've got to make connections, get to know people, you know, try and develop ideas around shared vision, you know, about shared things that you want to create. Um, you know, it's, I mean, I feel as I'm really unhelpful um, because there are no obvious answers. I mean, we've created um, certain programs that are about helping to nurture talent in that way. Um, so, you know, we do masterclasses, we do all sorts of different things. We created a fellowship when I arrived. Um, I wanted to create a fellowship for the best postgraduate musicians where they would learn not just to be the most brilliant players, but also they'd, we'd teach them the skills so they could work in schools and prisons and hospitals and with youth at risk and so on. So we do that fellowship and every it's a two-year fellowship and they come out of that fellowship and they can really build a portfolio career um, around doing performance, but plus lots of other work. Um, you know, so I think all one can do, all he can do is ask around. I mean, Berkeley is a very good place, um, you know, to be connected. Um, there's a guy called Jeremy Geffen who runs, um, you know, the arts program there. The mu Sorry, not the arts, the music program there. I mean, he should speak to Jeremy. Um, G-E-F-F-E-N. Um, Jeremy Geffen. I mean, you know, because he's a really good guy. He used to work for me. And that's not the only reason he's a good guy, but um, <laughs> he really is a good guy. Um, and he will, you know, he'll be interested. He'll, he'll make some introductions. All you can do is you try and chase introductions, you try and chase connections, and you never know which is the one that then leads to something. And it's, you know, I mean, I've been through the same thing with all my kids. <clears throat> and, you know, they, they never quite believe, you know, they always want something they know will succeed. Um, the trouble with being coming out of college is there is no such thing. Um, you know, you're you're in, in one way or another. You're just investing um, in trying to find where your path is going to lie. And most people coming out of college don't even really know how they're going to spend their life. Fair enough. Um, you know, I mean, if I think of myself, I mean, I was originally going to be a mathematician. I ended up becoming a musician, joined the London Symphony Orchestra as a cellist. Um, and ended up by mistake in management. Um, it wasn't something I'd sought or something I was interested in. Um, in fact, I was not interested in it, specifically not. Um, but I ended up doing it. It was the best mistake of my life. And it's ended up with me running Carnegie Hall. So in other words, I thought I knew what I wanted to do. I'm not doing anything I wanted to do, um, you know, when I was 20, 21. You know, so kids have to understand that They've got talents. If they're talented, and he will be if he went to Berkeley, mm -hmm. um, if he's talented, I always remember, you know, a teacher when my oldest kid went to school, the teacher said, don't forget, 
all talented kids are multi-talented and they are and you know they might try, i mean he may think he wants to be a player i wanted to be a player i thought management was a terrible thing boring routine thing to do it's the most exciting thing i've done in my life um so in other words keep an open mind as well you know don't assume there's something you don't want to do because you might find it's the thing you do want to do as i did i knew i didn't want to do this um, and i've ended up doing the thing i love most and you know so i mean kids tend to have a closed mind whenever anybody comes to me for career advice and says i've mapped my career path i want to do this for four years that for four years i always say to them it's a terrible mistake um don't you know think of the number of lawyers who end up in congress i mean they didn't they they thought they were going to be lawyers they end up in government um you know actually much more happy so every so many people end up in something that's different from what they thought they wanted to do so keeping an open mind is one of the biggest things in a lot very good advice thank you sir thanks well sepstein you've got a question yeah hi um, it's in regard to when performances will be able to uh, happen again. And I have, well, I have to say being in Southern California, this is an easier question to answer, but what about outdoor performances? Do you think they could come back sooner? And I'm thinking of like Shakespeare in the park for you all there, you don't have the room to do outdoor as we do here or Hollywood Bowl and so on. What do you think about outdoor performances? Well, I think that is definitely an opportunity where organizations have it. Um, so the LA Phil with um, the Hollywood Bowl are blessed, um, you know, with a fantastic opportunity. Because yes, you definitely should be able to do that. And one might even be able to make that viable financially. With a closed hall, obviously, it, you know, or virtually impossible to make it viable financially, um, as well as look after people healthily. So yes, and I mean, Lincoln Center, I know, are looking at how do they use the plaza. I mean, it's a limited space, but it's an open space. And it means they can space people. And so you can do something. So I think the simple answer is yes. I mean, outdoor performance opportunities should be explored. I mean, our space around Carnegie Hall is absolutely minimal. So we're looking at whether there's other things we can do, maybe in a park or whatever it is. We are looking at other ideas. Um, you know, we can probably get about 20 people on the sidewalk outside Carnegie Hall. So that's not going to be the answer. Um, but but for those who have the space, 100% it's an opportunity to start doing things meaningfully. Now, along those lines, um, the other side of it is, uh, I'm on a symphony board, so I know uh, what the orchestra thinks about it. To get them wanting to do it, to, you're talking about getting audiences in. The other problem is getting actors or uh, musicians, etc., to want to do the job. Do you, can you speak about that a bit? Well, all I can say is, you know, everybody has to adapt to life. If you don't, you're finished. Um, you know, the whole thing about what makes human beings so extraordinary is we're all, well, usually we're adaptable. Um, those who don't and are unable to adapt fail. Um, it's almost inevitable that they fail. And, and I think if there's orchestras who say, we won't do this because, you know, whatever, I mean, whatever their reasons, um, all I can say is they're making a terrible mistake because you're, you know, it's very important for them to remain connected to their audiences. 
if they can give, you know, because after all, playing outdoors, I mean, there's the Hollywood Bowl, there's um, Ravinia, there's Tanglewood. There are so many great outdoor venues where you, okay, it's not the same experience as in a great concert hall. Of course it's not. Um, but it can be a very special experience nonetheless. And you've got to make it an important experience. Um, but I think if one is too snobbish about one's art form, um, you know, of course, you're not going to, you shouldn't do something that is going to be terrible in terms of quality. Um, of course, one shouldn't do that. But if one's looking for ways to keep the art form alive and meaningful and stay connected with audiences, it is perfectly possible to create something really meaningful and powerful and important performing outdoors. Because there's all the technology now to do that as well. I mean, when you look at places like Ravinia, they've got it all set up. So, um, all the speakers, you know, that amplify the music and carry to the back, they're phased. So, um, because obviously, electronically, when it's being carried to the speakers, it's traveling at the speed of light. Um, but the sound going from the stage is only traveling at the speed of sound. So, they so the technology slows it down, so that what comes out of the speakers is traveling, is reaching the speaker at the same time as the sound from the stage does. So that all now possible it never used to exist um so you know it, it used to be meaningless because if you had speakers and you've got you know all virtually instantaneous sound reaching the back whereas the, the speed of sound is so much slower it's a whatever it is 700 um, 700 miles an hour instead of 136,000 miles per second i mean you know it, it, one used to, that used to ruin the performance it's not necessary now you can do it perfectly well and and you know really successfully so all of that technology exists now. Clive, we're going to finish up with one last question. I wanted to thank you again beforehand. I wanted you also to know that uh, Representative Stephanie Mur uh, Murphy was on at the beginning of the call and listened to your remarks. I will make sure that she gets a recording of this or a, a readout of this so that um, the pitch you made is at least with somebody who has been interested in these issues um, Thanks, from a congressional standpoint. Um, with that, Bill Galston. It's my happy duty uh, to be asked to close this session. Uh, I have to say it's been a pleasure and a privilege to have you. You're as subtle and skilled an advocate for your cause as any advocate for any cause that I've heard in quite some time. And we're fortunate that it's such a worthy cause. Uh, we all have our memorable Carnegie Hall experiences. I will briefly share mine. Uh, I'm a not very talented amateur jazz pianist, uh, but I had the privilege of attending Yubi Blake's last concert at Carnegie Hall, uh, the aged stride musician who came out on stage when he was in his early 90s. And, you know, the applause was deafening and lengthy. When it subsided, he said, thank you, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Then he paused for three beats and said, Hell, at my age, I'm glad to be anywhere. And those of us of a certain age now understand exactly what he was talking about. <laughs> uh, I, uh, you know, I took copious notes as you were speaking, and two things jumped out at me as being particularly relevant connections to what we as an organization are trying to do. You know. The first was when you responded to your colleagues asking about whether a particular venture would be useful to Carnegie Hall. And you corrected them in saying, 
and said, that's the wrong question. Right. Uh, and, you know, and then you said, we're here to serve. That is exactly the spirit that brings this organization together. Uh, you know, you see before you a number of important investors in the organization, uh, but the return that they hope to get is not measured in dollars and cents. It's measured in the well-being of the country. Right. Uh, the second, you know, you know, second, and you know, and I'm sure that Nancy Jacobson, who's one of the best fundraisers anybody will ever meet, understood exactly what you were saying when you said that, you know, you you didn't want to go to funders with a good proposition. You deserve to fail. Uh, that you you wanted to come to them with with something that the world can't do without. Quote unquote. Well, frankly, that's the that's the proposition, or as they say on Wall Street, the value proposition that we're putting to our investors and to the country. We believe that bringing the country together across its differences in a way that uh, might, for example, lead to the swift enactment of some of the pieces of legislation you referred to in your opening remark, uh, is something that the country can't do without. Uh, and we're in the process of trying to prove that we're, we're indispensable. Uh, and I leave with, uh, I end with a question that your presentation brought to mind. You know, have we as an organization perhaps neglected one of the age old functions of the arts? And that is to say, to create experiences that bring people together across their differences. You know, what if we could figure out a way of bringing you know, red members and blue members together for a program that featured both a gospel choir and country music singers? You know, just for example, uh, could we create a more of a common spirit through the arts? You don't have to be a deep reader of Plato and the classics uh, to know that they regarded uh, music, music A, writ large, as the profoundest form of human education. So you've left us with a lot to think about, and we are very grateful to you. Oh, well, Bill, thank you for those words. And I mean, only just to reiterate, I mean, I think what you're all trying to do is so vitally important. And I mean, I find, you know, okay, I'm an outsider, but I love America. I'm here to stay. Um, and, you know, to see America torn apart in the way it is at the moment, um, when America, for so much of life, has represented all the values that all of us actually admire and care about all around the world. Um, you know, it's been the best representation one could have of all of those values. Um, you know, and to see now it's struggling um, in this way, I mean, is, is something that makes me incredibly sad. And, you know, and I just, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, what you're trying to do is unbelievably important for this country and for the people of this country. And which is why I'm so honored to have actually been able to, to meet with and talk with all of you as well. Sir Clive Gillinson notes that Carnegie Hall is not merely home to a prestigious arts venue, but also maintains extensive educational programming, reaching roughly 800,000 individuals annually. Carnegie Hall has had to cancel all in-person programming through at least January of 2021 and has been streaming performances in the meantime. 
Unfortunately, arts venues will be among the last parts of our economy to reopen. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast. 